as I said, was read for us earlier. And let's begin by prayer. Lord, we come to you thankful that you have given us a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And would you use it this morning to guide us and direct us that we might walk faithfully to you each day. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, some of you will remember in the early 2000s when Richard Dawkins wrote his book, The God Delusion. And in it he writes, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I think he was not pulling any punches. But Dawkins, I believe, was merely putting to paper what many people already were thinking about God. That yes, Jesus, the New Testament, the message of God's love, that's wonderful, but the stuff in the Old Testament, those ideas of judgment, punishment, four-letter words like hell, we need to move beyond such things, or so the thinking goes. And even, sadly, many Christians and churches have moved beyond it. Yes, if you go look at their doctrinal statement, they will still affirm these truths, but the absence of any word coming from the pulpit or the messages that are given seem to don't think that these are not pressing concerns. Instead, they want to win people with a gentler, more approachable message. Well, just as Dawkins was merely articulating many people's thoughts, so churches and pastors are merely following what their congregations want to hear. The topic of judgment and hell make us quite nervous sometimes, even embarrassed. I know a man who, when he was in college, he was not a Christian, and he would go up to Christians, friends he had, who he knew there was Christians, and he would say to them, you know I'm not a Christian. Am I going to go to hell? And then he would get their response from them. Well, how would you respond if a friend or a family member came up and said to you, well, I'm not a Christian. Am I going to go to hell? What do you think even of this topic? Perhaps some are glad. Well, finally, pastors get into the stuff that people need to hear. Let them have it. Or you might be nervous. You might be thinking, oh boy, what's the pastor going to say? Am I just going to be sitting out here cringing the whole time, just hoping that he doesn't say something that's really awkward? Or perhaps you're somewhere in between. You're like, well, it's in Scripture, but I don't really know what to do with it. I don't know what to think of this topic. Well, wherever you are, 2 Kings 17 this morning and the 23 verses we're looking about is all about God's judgment. In it, we see the reason for God's judgment. We see the punishment of God's judgment. And we also see the fairness of God's judgment. If you've got a bulletin, you can see those three points on the back. And normally, as you know, we walk through verse by verse. Today, I'm going to do a little bit more of an overview. And we'll look at these three big things, themes. The first one being the reason for God's judgment. And we see it in chapter 17, verse 7. And it says there, And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. Now, the author here has already told of the judgment. They were taken in, they were punished, they were 
conquered. And then he tells why it happened. Now, God had told them this many times before, but now he's just summarizing all the reasons before. And he starts with this overarching reason for why are they punished? Because they have sinned against the Lord their God. And while we could point to many issues for Israel, or even in our own life, the foundational issue for Israel, for every person in every society, is how are they relating to God? Now, the point is not that every single issue you have is due to some personal sin, as though if you steal something, then you will get some illness, or if you have some illness, it's because of some personal sin. Rather, it's that our rebellion against God is the foundational issue. It's the fault line that then leads to every other issue in our life. We have many issues. We have our finances, our possessions, our thoughts, our relationships. And yet all of those should be subservient to the primary issue of our life, our relationship with God. And once we lose right perspective on the foundational issue, well, you have what goes wrong when you get a bad foundation on your house. Everything else begins to fall apart. And we see that even by what is not said in 2 Kings 17. Imagine a history book was written of a nation that collapsed. I doubt many chapters, if any, would have been given to what their relationship was with God. Instead, they probably would have talked about their economic policies that led to this, or their foreign and domestic policies, or maybe they had an aging population, or they'd give all these horizontal issues for why the nation collapsed. But 2 Kings 17 doesn't mention any of those at all. And there are modern history books that would not mention God at all, Well, that's what the Bible is solely concerned about. The foundational issue of primary importance for their downfall is they sinned against the Lord their God. And then, after stating that as kind of a heading, verses 8 through 13 then lay out seven ways this is manifested. First, we're told in verse 7 that instead of fearing God, they feared other gods. Second, in verse 8, They walked in the ways of the nations that God had driven out before them. Verse 9, their sin became rampant in its location. It wasn't just public worship that they went to that was false. It wasn't just private things they did in their home. Everything from public to private was against the Lord. They became quite brazen. As the prophet Jeremiah says, they did not even know how to blush. They'd lost that normal sense of shame that something happens and you blush because you're embarrassed. Well, Israel lost their sense of shame. Everywhere they lived, they had filled their land with idolatry. We even read this in verse 9. These watchtowers, these are these remote outposts where you might put a sentry or a little regiment so they can watch, letting them know before the enemy comes. Way out in the middle of... Nowhere. But all the way in the middle of nowhere, to every high hill, every green valley, they have filled their land with idolatry. Fourth, we see in verse 10, they built ashram poles, a religion known for sexual immorality. Fifth, they make sacrifices from the, just like the nations that God removed, we see in verse 11. Then a generic statement, a sixth thing is given in verse 11, that they do wicked things. And then 7th, verse 12, they served idols. A clear breaking of the first 
and second commandment. Now, any single one of those would have been enough for God to punish Israel. Yet we have this list of seven practices. And the passage states that these occurred for year after year while God was sending prophet after prophet trying to get them to stop. As if this list of seven verses wasn't enough, then verses 14 through 23 gives even more reasons. You know, one of the sad ironies of men like Richard Dawkins is that they attack God for being capricious, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, as he writes it. But they haven't grasped the situation. God is anything but petty and unjust. All of these sins are, that we just cataloged, that are given here, are a direct affront to God's character. And not only that, not only are they hurting God, sin always ultimately will then lead to hurting other people. And we even see that in verse 17, because there we read that they begin to burn their sons and daughters as sacrifices. You know, if you're truly loving God, you will always be truly loving people. If you move away from loving God, you may call what you do love, but ultimately you will eventually do things that are unloving to others. And yet many people, when they hear of God's judgment, they go, well, but I really want to believe in a God of love. And they see these things as two opposites, two extremes. You know, I don't want to believe in a God of wrath and judgment and anger. I want a God of love and mercy and kindness. And yet, when we look at Jesus and his message of love, we also see that Jesus talks more than anyone else about judgment and hell. One pastor even noted that amazingly, 13% of Jesus' sayings are about hell and judgment, and more than half of his parables relate to the eternal judgment of sinners. As well, it's impossible to actually love someone and not hate the wicked actions that hurt them. Becky Piper writes, Think of how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. You're thinking maybe someone getting addicted to drugs or falling into relationships that will harm them. She continues, Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. John Oswald writes similarly, So does God get angry? Yes, he does. But it is not the selfish anger of a fallen human, nor is it the temper tantrum of an imperious heavenly monarch who will not permit his lowly subjects to do what they want. It's the heart-broken response of an artist who watched his artistic creations doing things that are not only a violation of his original dream, but a violation of their very natures. You know, our sin robs God of his glory, and it brings long-term harm and harm, heart and hurt, harm and hurt to each other. Well, God in his love will not allow this to go on forever. And so we see what he does next. He sends punishment. And the punishment here is really described at the beginning and the end of our passage today. 
It begins in verse 1 where we read of the last king of these northern Israel. Here we read of Hosea. And like the other kings of Israel, he does not do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And so God sends this king of Assyria, Shalmaneser, against them. And Hosea's only means of deliverance at first is, well, we'll pay tribute. We'll give money, and that way Shalmaneser won't come and attack us. But then after a while, as you can imagine, he begrudges having to send money off to another nation. So he says, I'll make a deal with Egypt. And I'll get Egypt to help me so if Assyria comes, we'll be able to defeat them. So he refuses his payment to Assyria. He allies with Egypt, and the plan falls apart. Assyria comes down and takes Hosea captive. And then a siege comes, and after three years, Samaria is overtaken, and the people are taken into exile. They're spread out into four different places. And then in verse 24, after our section, we read that not only did they take people from Israel, but they then resettle people from other nations into the geographic land of Israel. And this was a catastrophic punishment against Israel. You know, this really goes to the foundation of them as a people. You may remember Genesis 12, God made his promises to Abram, who become Abraham. And in his promises, Genesis 12, 5 through 7, it says, When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. The very foundational promise is now coming unraveled. And Israel didn't get to fulfill this right away. They had to wait for the promise to be passed to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to his sons. And then they had to wait hundreds of years while they were in Egypt. And then they had to wait while they sat outside in the wilderness because they didn't trust the Lord. And then after 40 years, they were able to go in and take the land. And so they inherited it and they valued it. You know, they valued it so much that remember what Naboth said. You may remember the story, 1 Kings 21. Ahab, the king, wants to take Naboth's vineyard. And he even offers him, well, I'll pay you for it. I'll give you an even better one. But Naboth replies, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. The land was so valuable, they didn't want to even sell it. How much worse that it would become and robbed from them. That they would be taken away from it and resettled in other lands. And yet while the loss of land was a tragic punishment, it really stands for the harsher punishment that we see in the last few verses of our section, and that is losing God's presence. Look at verse 18. Second Kings 17, verse 18, there it says, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. Or look at verse 20. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunders until he had cast them out of his sight. Or jump down to verse 22. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. As he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. You know, three times 
repeated over and over and over, they were removed from God's presence. Now, of course, you can never actually get away from God's presence. God is everywhere. But Scripture talks about how God especially bestows His presence, His face, on certain places and people. That's why Aaron's blessing in number 6 says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you. Twice in this blessing is this call, Lord, would you make your presence be known towards us? And there's really a sense, what we're looking at here this morning in 2 Kings 17 is a microcosm of the whole biblical story of the fall. You know, people were given commands, and if they would just live by them, they would be blessed. And yet, what do they do? They forsake the Lord, they turn, and what do they then lose? They lose God's presence, and they're punished. You know, God's curse was our being removed from His presence in the garden. Then He gave us the curse of sin, and His greatest blessing is that He'll be with us. He can only be with us once our sin is removed, and so His greatest blessing is then when we are with Him again. We see this throughout Scripture, because what does He tell Moses? He tells him to go, and He says, I will be with you. When Moses passes the leadership to Joshua, Moses encouraged them with these words, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. This is the wonderful promise of Jesus. After the Great Commission, He says, For lo, I am with you always. We have God's presence restored in Christ. And that's what is heaven described as? Well, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That is the great blessing of heaven, that we will be with God. Then after that we read what we think is the great blessing. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Now those are wonderful blessings, to know that we'll never have sorrow again, to know that there will never be another sick day, that there will never be another broken relationship, that we will never have any pain. That is wonderful, but all of that flows from the foundation of being with God. His presence is the greatest blessing. And so as we said earlier, if the foundation of our life is our relationship with God, and when that falls apart, it, our whole life begins to disintegrate. So the flip side is, our life begins to be restored when we have God's presence again. And that is why it's such a blessing that Jesus says, I will be with you always. And that's why here in our passage, the greatest punishment Israel received was not exile from the land, 
That was a great punishment, but the greater punishment was their loss, their removal of God's presence from them. And yet you might be thinking, how in the world could God allow this to happen to his people? Sure, I mean, they weren't perfect, but they're his. Isn't he supposed to take care of them? Aren't they maybe even to get a break? Is this punishment even fair? Well, this passage makes clear of the fairness of God's judgment. We will see that last, our third section, the fairness. And we see the fairness really in three ways. By God's warnings, God's standards, and His examples. First, God's judgment is fair because God warned them exactly what would happen due to their sins. We see this in verse 13, chapter 7, 13. For it says, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. You know, thus God sent messenger after messenger telling them, look, these actions you're doing, they're going to bring judgment. And then God waited for around 200 years to then give this punishment. You know, it's thus a very superficial reading of the Old Testament to say like Dawkins that God is a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. These are not petty crimes, and God was longing all along to forgive. However, God will not forgive if we won't own our sin, confess it, and turn from it. Second, we see God's fairness and justice, for His commands were not changed or altered or updated, as though God had changed His policies. We've all experienced this in life. You work somewhere and they tell you this is how you fill this out. And you learn the routine. You learn the process. And you go and do it the next day. And they go, oh, we don't do it that way anymore. We changed it. You go, oh, okay. Then you learn the new process. And you get that down. And then you finally get that one down. They go, oh, we just got word from management. We're no longer going to do it this way. Now we're going to do... And they give you a new process. And you get overwhelmed. And you finally say, could you just pick away? I don't care how we do it. Just pick away and we'll do it. Well, that's not what God did. God did not have one way. Well, and then he gave another way. And then he gave another. And Israel's just so confused. We, we don't know what you want, God. God has been clear. He's given them the same message over and over. And one consistent message God has had is if you will follow me, you'll be blessed. If you won't, you will be cursed. Thus, Deuteronomy twenty-eight twenty-six says, the Lord, if they sin, the Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. The very thing that we see happening here, God had warned them of centuries before. Thus, the issue is not a lack of clarity concerning what the message said, nor was it that Israel hadn't heard the message. It's even re-emphasized. Again, look at verse 23 at the end. This says, Until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. Now, tragically, we all know people who are unlike this. Now, I knew a family of professing Christians, and their child did something quite horrific. And he was going to a judge, and his mom, a professing Christian, said, well, just lie so you don't get in trouble. When I counseled her and said, you shouldn't do that. Yes, we don't want him to be punished, but he did it. 
She said, well, I got to look out for my son. As though we should have different standards for those we care about. And yet God is never like that. God holds everyone to the same standard and he plays no favorites. Thus God is showing his judgment is fair because he repeatedly warned it by the prophets. It's been the same standard throughout time. And third, on top of that, God even gave them examples warning them. Look at verse 8. And they, Israel, walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before them. Or in the middle of verse 11. There they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. God had given them the example, look, these nations were worshiping these idols, so what did I do? I kicked them out of the land. It's like the person who goes and takes a drink of hot chocolate and they spit, oh, it's so hot. And then someone goes right behind them and drinks it and goes, oh, I can't believe I burned my tongue. Well, didn't you just see the example in front of you? Of course it happened. And Israel was given examples to show what will happen. And yet, as we've said before, sin makes us foolish. So rather than turning from what was a curse to the other nations, they embraced it. And so they shouldn't be surprised that God does to them what he did to the nations. Thus we read at the end of verse 17 that their continual idolatrous ways provoked him to anger. If you were ever in school, you probably had the unenjoyable experience of the person behind you kicking a chair. Kick, kick, kick. Just waiting as your insides kept spiraling up until you finally lost it. Well, Israel makes golden calves. Kick. They act like the surrounding nations. Kick. They built ashram pillars. Kick. They serve Baal. Kick. They sacrifice their children. Kick. And more and more and more. And yet, unlike us who maybe couldn't make it through a minute of our chair being kicked, God waits 200 years. He's slow to anger. But even he says, 200 years is a lot, you know. It's a lot of times to keep poking me with the very things I told you will be your own destruction. And so the Lord is provoked to anger and he removes them as a nation. Now on a little rabbit trail here, I wonder if you've ever read or had other people tell you about ancient history. If you ever read ancient history, it reads very much like a propaganda material. There, everything they've done is good. Almost nothing negative is ever recorded. If you go look at their displays of their victories... You wonder how they're not a nation anymore because all they have is victory, victory, victory. No defeats are recorded. Nothing is painted on the walls of downfalls. And yet, what does the Bible give us? A complete, honest description of their utter sin and downfall. This is not a rose-colored glasses view of Israel's history. Why? Because it's meant to be true. Because the story ultimately is not about Israel. The story is about God. And so we can take confidence in God's word because unlike everything else in the past, we're being recorded what is true and honest to see what God is like. But back to the main point. We've been talking this morning of Israel's punishment that they received. 
And yet these truths apply to us as well. Just like there is a reason for Israel to be judged, so there is for us. Now we don't like that idea. We think, well, yes, there are some people in our world that need to be judged. Yes, there are people out there, but come on. I'm not that bad of a person. I mean, no one's perfect, but actually God is. And that's the issue. We try to avoid judgment by no longer looking up at God's perfect character. We look horizontal. And if we look horizontal, we can always find someone who's worse than us. Well, I'm not that bad. And so we think, well, we don't deserve judgment. Yet when we compare ourselves against God's perfect holy and righteous character, we see that our sin shows we deserve God's judgment. It means that God should punish us. You know, it's not just those people out there. It's these people in here and this person right here who all deserve God's judgment. Not only is there a reason for receiving God's judgment, but just as God warned Israel what their punishment will be, So scripture, even Jesus warns us of the coming judgment. Jesus said in Matthew 25, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And Jesus makes clear, there's no favoritism. So once when he's talking to people who are of Israel, Jesus said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it is so serious that Jesus gives these strong hyperboles. Mark 9, 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now we know it's hyperbole because if we cut off every part of our body that caused us to sin, we would have nothing left But his next point is not hyperbole, for he says, It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Yet again, many wonder, is this fair? I mean, Israel had God's word, they had the warnings of the prophets, but what about those in our world who haven't heard? Yet Romans 1 is clear, that God's character is clearly seen so that they are without excuse. Romans 2 shows us God's character is written on our heart. Romans 2, 14 through 16 says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, where their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Some of you may know Francis Schaeffer, and he gave an analogy explaining this. He said, it's kind of like God has an invisible magic recorder around everyone's neck. And God comes up and he puts this recorder around your neck, and every time you say certain phrases, it starts recording. Phrases like, hey, you shouldn't. Or hey, you should do this. Or you ought to do this. And on the day of judgment, Schaeffer says, all God will do is he'll come up behind each person, And take off their magic recorder and he'll hit play. And we'll say all the things that match up with his law. Well, you shouldn't. And then he'll say, well, you yourself knew that you shouldn't do all these things. Your own words 
condemn you. Thus, every person has enough revelation to make them culpable before God. What they need to hear is the life-giving news that if they call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. And so this should motivate us in giving, in praying, and sending forth missionaries. Yes, God could work in miraculous ways. He could bring someone to faith without someone going, but God could also give you bread without you going out to work. And He could heal you without going to the doctor. But that's not how He normally works. So we shouldn't presume on His grace. We should do the ordinary things. And as ambassadors ourselves, we should be eager to reach out in love to those who don't know the gospel and be missionaries in our communities where God has placed us. Along with this, we need to be clear that while God sends people to hell, it's what they want. Now that may seem extremely odd. Well, no one wants to suffer. Well, yes. If that's what we're talking about, then yes, no one wants hell. But who are those who go to hell? It is basically those who say, God, I don't want your rules. I don't want you. And so God says, well, if you don't want to be with me, where is the place where people go who don't want to be with me? Well, I will give you what you want. You don't have to be with me. I will give you what you want for eternity. And so though they maybe don't want the consequences of their choice, God is giving them the very choice they want. C.S. Lewis said there are only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God, or those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Well, in the beginning, I mentioned a friend who was not a Christian during college, and he liked to go up to Christians and ask them, well, you know I'm not a Christian. Will I go to hell? And then finally, one woman said to him, yes, but you don't have to. And that man, that man was so impressed by that woman that he eventually married her. But that's a whole nother story. Nonetheless, he was shaken. So many people had hemmed and hawed. Change the subject, something else. But she had been clear. Yes, you will. But you don't have to. God does not want you to. He has a plan for you. And let's look at that plan. Turn to Romans 5 and we'll end looking at these verses. Romans 5. We'll look at verses 6 through 11. You see, unlike the caricature Dawkins paints of God as vicious, petty, unforgiving, the Bible over and over shows God to be kind, patient, and longing to forgive. That forgiveness won't come at the expense of God's righteous character, though. So, rather than just saying, well, I just won't punish them, he put that punishment on his son. We read of this, Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, even that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. 
And he continues, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now this is an issue that we can't just talk about in theory, talk about on an arm distance level, because it's appointed for every single one of us to die, and then the judgment. And so the question comes to us, why will you tell God that you should not be judged? He won't forgive because on the balance you've got more good deeds than bad. Okay, well, you did better than bad, so I'll let you in. Though sadly, many people, and even many people who go to church, if you ask them, why will God forgive you? They say, well, I've been a pretty good person. And yet the good news of Christ is for those who say, I was not a good person. I could not do enough good to ever outweigh the bad. It's while we were enemies, while we were ungodly, that he died for us. It's not that, well, I realized I was a sinner, and then at one point in my life I became religious. And then I was faithful to go to church. I taught my kids the Bible. I gave money to the church, so God, you should forgive me. I joined your team. No. You can be religious. The Pharisees were very religious. And not know God. The only hope is to turn from your sins. Realize there is no hope in yourself and trust in Christ. He alone brings reconciliation. He alone can take the wrath, the judgment that you deserve. So do you know His forgiveness? His judgment is fair. His punishment will come. And we will all receive it or Christ will receive it for us. May we all see that great forgiveness and turn to him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, amazing grace. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Lord, we are amazed at your mercy and your love. Would you help us? As many of us have heard this message hundreds of times, not to grow dull not to grow weary of hearing of your amazing love and forgiveness for us. Lord, work in the lives of those who don't know. May they not move on, get to lunch, and then leave the message behind. Lord, may they recognize their sin and find hope in your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.